0: It is good to see you. it is good to be in the house of the Lord together this morning. Will you go with me to the book of Luke? We're going to be in chapter 15. It'll be on the screen here behind me. You can follow along. I'm going to set these down at risk of not being able to get up later on. Chapter 15, verse 1 through 10. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins, loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God, over one sinner who repents. This is the word of God for the people of God, and together we say, Thanks be to God. For the next four weeks, we're gonna be joining together and spending some time exploring the mystery of Jesus' parables. And I say mystery because the parables are a very abnormal form of literature. Um, they're not like many other writings or really any other writings. Often we're prone to take a story like the parables and try to boil them down to like their face value, to, to their simplest form. We are people drastically affected by the age of enlightenment, and so after the late 17th century, we have this propensity to really take a lean towards rationality and reason and understanding and order. We're often uncomfortable with ambiguity. Um, We like to make sure things fit into an orderly structure so we can understand them. We need the seven easy steps to become a better Christian, or we want the prepackaged instructions to unlock our faith. We need the BuzzFeed listicle that will summarize the Bible for us. And I'm right there with you. I mean, that's, I'm not just saying you are like that. We are like that. That's how our culture and our way of learning has just been shaped over the past couple hundred years and in, in, in its modern form. Who does not go on Facebook and click on what says, the seven easy steps to do something that you're interested in? I mean, you got to, I got seven steps I can do. All right, I can do that. Seven steps. Well, Jesus was not about that life. He was not full of seven easy steps. Not at all, really. In one of the parables we'll read in the coming weeks, Jesus concludes by saying, Whoever has ears, let them hear. Another time, he says, I speak in parables so that all will not understand. He's intentionally confusing, he is obfuscate, he is difficult to understand, he can be misleading. If we try to take exactly what he says at face value, the Old Testament prophesied this though. The Old Testament prophesied that Jesus would come, that the Messiah would come speaking in parables and not all would understand. Inherent in reading any part of the Bible is the need to interpret and contextualize the text, to think about it in a new and unique way When it was written and how it works now, how it is working on our lives. And we are encouraged that the truth of God is wrapped in mystery. God is God and we are not. And so we have to seek to understand God. And as Paul says, together we work out our our faith with fear and trembling. And so that's what we're going to do with the parables for the next couple weeks. Together we're going to try to discern what's going on here. We're going to journey through them, and instead of just taking them at their face value initial read, um, we're going to see how Jesus is being very countercultural. He's revolutionary. We're calling this series Upside Down because that's what Jesus does in our lives. He takes what we think we know, and he turns it upside down. He takes the normal life and makes it abnormal. He takes the ordinary and makes it extraordinary. He turns life upside down. And so in your bulletin, it said that my sermon title for today is From Lost to Found, but I'd like to change that a little bit. I I had something else resonating. We're still going to be in this subject, but I'd like to say, the found are lost. I'd like to preach this morning from the subject, the found are lost. Will you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. As you may have noticed in my, um, the way I preach the past couple weeks, I often follow a very similar form. I'll, I'll read the scripture, and I'll set up the sermon, and then I'll pray. This is called the prayer of illumination, God opening our eyes and our ears. And then I'll have some sort of intro story to try to connect us to the text. Often that story contains some form of humor because there's a lot of things in my life I think I can laugh about, and I think that God... Enjoys um, when we are, are full of joy, and nothing I think makes me more full of joy than laughing and being full of humor. And so, but this morning I want to follow a similar pattern, but instead of connecting us to the text, I would like to to talk just a second about the posture of preaching and teaching. Um, I went to Grits and Grace week before last, and um, it's a cool ministry where once a month, people from our church, men from our church will gather together and have breakfast and then have a reflection, uh, some sort of sermonette or a, a short you know, devotional, and I was blessed to be there on last Thursday when Reverend Steve Dill um, brought the sermon, that, the reflection for that morning. And if you don't know Steve Dill, he's a retired pastor who's a senior pastor here for many years, and he's a brilliant man and has so much wisdom to offer, and, and I was I'd never heard him preach before. I'd never heard him offer a sermon or a reflection. And so I was really enamored with the experience. And uh, he pulled out, this was really cool. We were all sitting around, grits and grace and maple syrup was flowing freely. And all of a sudden he pulled out a manila folder and had his entire sermon, his reflection typed up as a manuscript, like this man was ready to go. I've got my iPad up here with my bullet points that I try to keep in line, so I make sure I don't get too far off track, or else I'll talk for hours and hours, and Brian will have to come pull me off with my crutches. And so, but this, Steve Dill was so prepared, and he went through this devotion, and it was just a wonderful reflection about God. Um, but, but one of the things that I thought was super inspiring, or at least um, I reflected on recently, this weekend, was he opened his, his um, reflection for us by reminding us that in ancient Israel and even in, um, in Judaism, that the traditional teaching and preaching posture of the priests or the person bringing the reflection on scripture um, is to be seated. And so um, I was so inspired that, that Reverend Dill reminded me of that. That this past weekend on Friday, I thought you know I should go to Get Air Trampoline Park and sprain my ankle so that I could preach from the seated position this morning. And that's what I'm doing. <laughs> um, and so that uh, I, I, I thank you for your well wishes. Everybody see me on crutches? Like what happened? I keep telling people Brianna hit me the baseball bat so I wouldn't win a race. Um, but really, no. I was just acting like a big kid. And there was no children with us. There were just um, four adults hanging out at trampoline park. And, uh, and I've, I've, as I said, coordination is not my strong suit. And, uh, and so I sit before you today, unsure yet if it's broken. We'll find out tomorrow. I'm going to the doctor. Yes. And I appreciate all of your well wishes and concerns. Um, but really the truth behind it all is I just wanted to preach sitting down. I saw, I saw Andy Stanley do it one time. I was like, that's cool. I want to be like him. I'm just going to do that. And then Reverend Jill affirmed that, you know, the priest used to do it and he did it that day at Grizz and Grace. So like, you know, I'm just going to preach sitting down. I'm going to go spray my ankles so I can, so I have a reason to. And so that's what we're doing this morning. But as we shift to our text, though, our reading for this morning, I would like for us to dive in to Luke's gospel And this text might be somewhat familiar to us, the idea of being lost to found, the lost sheep and the lost coin. Right before this text, Jesus had a banquet with the community leaders and he was traveling around talking about the cost of discipleship. Right after our text is the parable of the um, prodigal son, which many of you might know. It's, It's one of the most famous parables in the gospels. And so we're situated between those two places where Jesus offers us these two parables this morning. And verse one tells us that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And if you are a CPA or a person who works in the tax collection business, it must be painful to always hear your profession singled out as like the worst of the worst in the Bible. And so I would like to affirm you very quickly to say that that Jesus is hanging out with the tax collectors. So that should show that you are one in good company Um, And two, that though the society might not value what you do, God obviously does because God was hanging out with the tax collectors there in the ancient Near East in our first century when Jesus was walking around. And so whereas the rest of the society says these people are thieves and crooks, um, Jesus is often hanging out with them rather than those who are most culturally favored or those who have the most high-ranking jobs. So Jesus is hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners, and all of a sudden, the Pharisees and the teachers, they start murmuring about how he is doing this, grumbling about Jesus's behavior. And, and they are, if you remember the Pharisees and the teachers, they're most akin to what I do. They're the priests, they're the pastors, they're the religious leaders, they're the religious figures. And the gospels often treat the tax collectors with more admiration than it does the religious leaders. So the Pharisees are, are murmuring about how terrible Jesus is and how he is hanging out with all these people and, and how he's just this bad person. And then Jesus offers these two stories. He says, suppose you have 100 sheep and you lose one. Even though you still have 99, wouldn't you go after the lost sheep until you found it? And when you find it, wouldn't you joyfully put it on your shoulders, call your friends and neighbors together and say, rejoice in me, I have found the lost sheep. Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner of repentance than the 99 persons who do not need to repent. And without taking a pause, he doesn't give any more explanation than that. He goes into another story And he says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins. And he talks about how if she loses one, wouldn't she light a lamp and sweep her house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she'll call her friends and say, rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. Jesus says, in the same way I tell you, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one person who repents One of the funny things about this text, about the way Jesus tells these stories, is this assumption that Jesus has, that everybody's in agreement that the behavior of the two people in the stories is logical. As if to say, you know, it makes sense if you have 99 sheep and you lose one, that you leave the 99 and go to find the one. Or if you have 10 coins and you lose one, that you spend your entire day looking for that one coin you lost. It's, it's Jesus just assuming like, oh, this, this is normal behavior. But according to my logic, if I have 99 sheep, I lose one. If I have 100 and I lose one, I'd rather protect my losses and just stay with my 99 to make sure nothing bad happens to them than risk losing all of them, than risk leaving them by themselves and going to find the one. Or for the woman who has the coins, the, it says, you know, the, the amount of money she has is not very great. We see this story also in Mark and Matthew. And, and the idea, it'd be as if like I had 10 dimes made a dollar. Um, that's you know, how money works, 10 of 10 equals a dollar. And, um, and you lose one of those dimes and then you spend your entire time looking for that one dime as opposed to saying, well, I still have 90 cents left. You know, it's basically the same thing. Um, that's what I would do. I'd be like, you know, it's not worth looking all night for. I've, I've still got the majority of what I already had. You know, the one is not real. But Jesus never, it doesn't even cross his mind. He never even phases. He says, of course, if you've got 100 and you lose one, you'll leave the 99. To go find the one, of course, if you've got a dollar and you lose a dime, you'll spend all your time looking for that dime, which is why it's even more significant that Jesus points this out, that when this woman finds her coin, she says, rejoice in me. Get hyped, everybody, I found my coin. Because though it might seem minuscule to the world or to everybody else, to God, every person matters. Every single person. And so it doesn't matter. It is, it's not just, oh, well, well God's got everybody else. Right? So if there's just a few people off to the side who aren't known, no, everybody matters to God. And so, you know, when we preach from this text, when we preach from these stories of lost to found, we often preach from them as a way of trying to help people accept their salvation. Jesus died for all people. And it's our way of, of living into the Christian faith is acknowledging that salvation Christ offers us and living into it with the way we live our lives. And so we preachers tend to use these texts as a way of trying to help people experience the justifying grace of God that will change their lives forever. I've heard a number of sermons, tons of sermons, about the you know the the lostness of the sheep that we are the sheep and that and that God is searching for us. Or even if you put it in the context of the prodigal son, which is a story that comes after it, and we'll save this for a different week. But but the, we're the one who goes away, and that God has favor on us and grace on us despite our misgivings and our wrong actions. And I will say that is a good interpretation of this text, of of the content which Jesus shares. Within these parables, they do set up this idea that we are lost people and that we need to be saved and we need to accept our salvation, that Christ died for us. And so if you were here this morning and have never heard that or have no idea what I'm talking about, just briefly, I'd like to say that we believe that Jesus is the son of God and that the same God that created the heavens and the earth wants to be in a relationship with us in a personal way, with us as a community, with us as individuals. But because of our free will to choose, we often choose the things that are not of God, that are not God's will, and we call that sin. And sin is that which separates us from God, both now and the present and eternity. Sin is that which keeps us from God but we also believe that God loved us so much, that God loves us, the people that God created, that God came down from heaven to earth, that God came to earth in the form of a human. And we call this person Jesus. This is the Son of God, and Jesus was also God. It's really confusing, I know, but we'll be having more conversations and classes on it as we go throughout the next few months and years. You're always welcome to jump in if you hear something that you're interested in. So, Jesus is God and the Son of God, and Jesus comes to earth to teach us what it means to know God to how, how to live, how to be the people God wants us to be. And despite all that knowledge, we still sin. We still mess up. We still fall short of the grace God offers us. And so what happened? Jesus willingly gave his life. He is the physician of all. He came to cure our human condition and offer us forgiveness for our sin. Because what happened after Jesus died, we believe Jesus, like everybody else, died. But Jesus did something nobody else is going to do. Jesus rose from the dead. Like we believe that a person died and was living again. I know it sounds crazy. It really does. But we believe it. I believe it. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And when that happened, Jesus offers us forgiveness for all those things we do that we know we should not do or all those things we didn't know we shouldn't do that now we realize we shouldn't do because the way Christ taught us to live. And so Christ forgives us for our sin and reconciles us to God Helps us recapture the image of God in which we were made. And this is the gospel story. This is, if you boil it down to to, to what do we believe as Christians, the most basic form is that. God loves us. Christ died. And because of that, death and resurrection, we have forgiveness. And so you might be sitting here saying, well, Woods, you don't know the things I've done. God can't forgive me. You are loved. God loves even you especially you. And there's nothing that you can do. Romans tells us there's nothing we can do that will separate us from the love of God. And so we are a forgiven people. We are a loved people. We are the people who have the grace of God in abundance ready for us whenever we choose to accept that salvation. So if you've never heard this before, or if you've heard it and not yet accepted it, or if you've accepted it and been backsliding a little bit because of the life you've been living, you know is not that one that really reflects the kingdom of God. There's forgiveness for us all today. And this text helps us realize that. This text helps us to know the good news of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, the salvation that Christ offers. And I could end my sermon there with that interpretation, with that reading of this text. And I think that I will have done justice to what the text has to say and to the message which Christ has for all of us. But I think there's something more to it. That's pretty upside down in and of itself, that you are freely given grace. Like there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. There's nothing you can say or do that will make you deserve the gift God has for us. But I believe there's more to it than this, and and I see it like this. Did you notice in the text who the audience was that Jesus was speaking these parables to? We often think of these texts as the ones that we should be saying and reading to the lost people, the the sinners, those who are not yet Christians, the the tax collectors in the eyes of the Bible. But in verse 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them these parables. Jesus isn't talking to the tax collectors and the sinners. He was already hanging out with them. They already know Jesus. He's having a meal with them. He's talking to the Pharisees, to the teachers, to the pastors, to the priests, to the religious figures. Both of these stories are not addressed to who we think they're addressed to. They're not addressed to the lost people. They're addressed to the people we already consider found. They're addressed to the people like you and me. In a way, it's strange. Why would Jesus be talking to those who supposedly already saved about the nature of salvation? Why would, why would he be telling the pastors about the basics of religion? They're the experts. They already know what's going on. They understand these basic things. It, it would be like me talking to a New York Times bestseller about this new book I read that they should totally read. It'll help them. It's called Sea spot Run. Hey, if you've ever heard of this book, you should totally go read it. It'll help you be a better New York Times bestseller. It's kind of patronizing in a way, if you think about it. It'd be like if you are a doctor and I go to your office and tell you, hey, you should totally check out WebMD. It's got lots of great resources. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to your law office and taking you a book of law for dummies and saying you should read this to be a better lawyer. But that's basically what Jesus is doing with these priests and these Pharisees, these, these religious leaders. He's saying, hey, here's the basic thing you should know that you probably already know, but apparently you don't understand it real well, so let me tell you some stories about it. And the reason is because Contrary to the way we often read these stories, these parables are not aimed at educating lost people or sinners about their need to accept salvation, but rather at admonishing the Pharisees for their perpetual neglect and overlooking of the people they consider to be less than themselves. These parables are not just meant to help save the sinners. They're helped to correct those who think they're found. It is Jesus calling out the religious elite for being so self-righteous that they cannot bring themselves to celebrate the fact that some of the people who are eating with Jesus are hearing about God for the first time and that we should be excited about that. They were so concerned with following the letter of the law. They were so focused on teetotaling this line of morality and decision-making based on social and societal and cultural norms that they were completely ambivalent to the mysterious work of God at hand. The lost people in these parables are not the sinners and the tax collectors. They would already found Jesus. He's literally hanging out and just being with them. The lost people in the parables are the ones who already think they know it all. If we were to talk about it in today's terms, these are the people who probably like me growing up were the people at church every time the doors opened. Like me, they could probably quote all sorts of Bible verses to show you how much they know about the Bible, how good Christians we are, who consider themselves good and moral people in their community because they believed in God and they believe in the Bible and, and they wanna make sure everybody knew that they believed in God and they believed in the Bible, that they were so focused on people-pleasing and living within this societal standards of morality and righteousness that, that we want to make sure everybody knew how righteous we are. The upside down message lying beneath these parable is to, to truly be found, we have to celebrate that God's mercy is for all people and not just the way that we think people should be. Because people are buried, buried deep in the mentality of the Pharisees and deep sometimes in my own mentality is this deep seated notion of us and them. Have you ever noticed that? Has it ever affected the way you think or believe? It has me, it has mine. It is the us who have found Jesus and the them who have not. It is the us who follow the rules and the them who have not. And as you'll hear me often say, our beliefs will end up influencing the way we live our lives. And so the us who act the way we think you're supposed to act and the them who act differently to us begin to reflect those who look like us and speak like we do, and the them who look and speak other. The us who have our moral leanings and beliefs, and the them who do not. This is the mindset of the Pharisees and the very heart of these parables that Jesus is speaking towards. That there are people who do not yet know the love of Jesus Christ. And I believe that a life lived with Jesus is better than a life not lived with Jesus. And so I want all people to know that Christ's love is for them. But that does not make me any better than them. That does not mean that I know so much more than them because I've been studying the Bible, so look how great I am, and you are a lost person. You're just a terrible person. You're a bad person. You know what? You should be more like me. Does that ever happen? I'm, I'm, I'm a lot of times just like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were missing the inbreaking of God's kingdom because they were more concerned with keeping up the appearance of righteousness than God's actual Righteousness. We're so concerned oftentimes with keeping up the appearance of righteousness that we're unable to see the work of God in the world. We are so concerned with other people seeing how good we are with keeping up with perceived normals, with with making sure that our lives fit into the proverbial bubble of Southern culture, that we fail to miss that God is at work with people who we think are sinners and tax collectors. Oftentimes we think we're taking God to these people when God's already there, when God's already at work. Our work is not necessarily to save everybody because they're so different than us. God saved us all 2,000 years ago and we are living into that and accepting that salvation each and every day. But to, to truly be found is to participate in the mercy of God for all people. To rejoice when even one person who might be completely different from us the way we look, the way we think, the way we consider life should be lived, whenever that person begins a life with Jesus Christ, we should rejoice because all the heavens are. Because God is. To be found, to be truly found, is for us too. Because every day we're given the opportunity to participate in the work of God and see God's mercy for everybody. So let me leave you with this ancient proverb from the Jewish culture, and I'll close with this. There was a farmer who was going to be granted three blessings from God with the understanding that whatever was given to him, twice as much would be given to his neighbor. The farmer was so excited, he couldn't believe how lucky he was, and so he asked God for 100 cattle. And God granted him the hundred cattle, and he was so excited about it until he looked over and he saw that his neighbor had 200 cattle. Then the far- farmer asked God for a 100 acres of land, and God gave it to him. He was so excited about the 100 acres of land he just received until he looked over and saw that his neighbor had 200 acres of land. He couldn't get past his jealousy and celebrate the mercy of God for others, because in his mindset it was unproportional to what he received. God was being too good to everybody else. Even though the blessing he received was something he did not deserve, something he could not control, and something that made his life better. But his perception of his neighbor jaded the way he understood what God was doing for his neighbor and for himself. And so even though what he received was not his to begin with, for his third blessing, he asked God to strike him blind in one eye. And God wept. May we be a people that do not turn our eyes from our neighbors in their time of need or in their time of rejoicing. Let us be a people who rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. May we be a people who rejoice at God's goodness for all people in all circumstances and let us participate in God's mercy and help make God's kingdom known on earth as it is in heaven. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you've loved us so much that you sent your son Jesus to die, to live with us, and that he did die and offers us forgiveness. We come before you and confess that we often fail short, that we are sinners in need of grace and mercy anew each day. Help us when we see others to see you Help us to share your word with all the world. Help us to reach out. We ask now, Holy Spirit, that you continue to move and connect us while we're apart from one another. Amen.